0: Titus chapter 1 is where we're going to be this evening and just as a quick recap of what we started last week, we talked about Paul writing this book to Titus and Paul introduces himself in the very beginning of the book as a bondservant as an apostle. And that is to say, the author views himself and his identity as a slave of God. And I talked about the slave of God idea, being possessed by God, being owned by God. In other words, he is completely controlled by what God expects of him. And what that is, is described in the subsequent verses. But secondly, Paul says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, which is his calling. So whereas him being a slave is his identity, his calling comes through the term apostle of Jesus Christ, but it also comes with authority. Paul received his authority directly from Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter one, when he talks about him being an apostle, in his first letter, he wrote Galatians first before any of the other letters, he says, I didn't receive my apostleship from man or from anywhere else, but straight from Jesus Christ. And so he repeats that same idea here. In order to establish himself as an authority, This is probably second to the last letter that he writes before he would be executed. After this comes 2 Timothy, and then he dies a few years after this letter is written. So whether it's the first letter or nearly the last letter that he wrote, Paul continues to view himself and his calling in this world. His mission is to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the audience that we talked about is introduced in verse 4, that is to Titus, my true child in a common faith. So we talked about Titus last week and Paul's affection, his commitment to Titus as his disciple. Paul calls Timothy, his son, and Titus, his son. There are a 100 people in the New Testament that are associated with Paul. And only two of those, Titus and Timothy, obtained that unique title, my son which speaks to intimacy and trust and affection and the fact that Paul viewed these young men that he invested into from the time that he met them. Acts 16 talks about Timothy's conversion. And then sometime between Acts 16, well, actually probably a little bit earlier than that, Titus would have been saved. And I said that Titus was the younger brother of Luke. Luke wrote Luke and Acts. And so Paul's commitment on the friendship level, but also on the ministry level goes To Titus. And just to summarize for you who Titus was, he was taken by Paul on the very first trip that's described in Galatians chapter 2 in order to answer the question how do we deal with the Gentiles who are becoming converts of Christ? Remember, the first church is a bunch of Jewish people, they're all Jewish individuals who are now beginning to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. And now the question is, what do we do with the Old Testament? Do we keep it? Do we obey it? Do we keep all those laws and all those rituals and all those festivals? Or do we look at all the entirety of the Old Testament differently? And specifically to the Gentiles. Are we converting the Gentiles to Christ or to the Old Testament Judaism? How do we think about that? And so in order to make a case that the Gentiles should not be converted to the Old Testament rituals and regulations and laws, Paul says, I'm going to bring my first... Exhibit one of the converts, and that was Titus. In Galatians 5, verses 2 through 6, we can get a glimpse into this debate and the conflict that solicited and demanded the presence of the apostles. This isn't being figured out at like a first seminary year level. This isn't a bunch of interns trying to figure out theology. These are the apostles. Peter is there, James is there, they're called the pillars of the first church. John would have been there, and Paul. And then it says many, many other apostles and church leaders. And this is what they're trying to figure out. Galatians 5.2 really summarizes as well for us. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, so they're arguing about circumcision, do you have to be circumcised to be truly a follower of Jesus? If you receive circumcision, Paul says, Galatians 5, two, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the spirit by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. So Paul goes after this issue of circumcision circumcision, and says there are people in the early Christian church. Make sure you understand that. This isn't a bunch of Pharisees arguing with Peter, James, and John, and Paul. No, these are Christians who are Jews who are saying you have to be circumcised. You have to keep the Old Testament law. And if you don't, you're not a true convert of Jesus. You don't really recognize Jesus as Messiah. And Paul says, okay, if that's the case then you have to keep the whole law for the end of righteousness so that then you can actually stand before God and be considered righteous enough to enter heaven. And if you violate any portion of the law, then you are unrighteous. The late James chapter two makes it very clear. You break one law, you break all of it. And so Paul says, it's not about circumcision or uncircumcision, verse six, it's about faith working through love. So the Christian life, Faith working through love. So if Paul is trying to defend that assertion that Christianity isn't about external rituals, it's about faith working through love, he has to defend it before James and John and Peter and many other leaders. So if he chooses one person to take with him to defend that argument and it's Titus, We have to back up and say, who was Titus? How godly was he? Faith working through love. So his life, professing to be a believer in Jesus Christ, was characterized by love and by all of the other elements of Christian godliness because that is what Titus 2, 1 through 4 will talk about. I'll address that in just a minute. So you have to have an elevated understanding of Titus. This isn't a kid. This isn't a new convert. This is a man who has proven himself to be faithful and godly enough that Paul says, I'm going to bring you the best in order to prove to you that it's not about circumcision. It's about this kind of faith living this kind of life. And he convinced them. We know that from the way the story ends, that he convinced them. And of course, there was a reconciliation and a change of theology that would follow. So we can say from the time that Titus was converted, sometime in Acts, sometime probably in Acts 11, most likely he became a man who was devoted to God, a man who was characterized by godliness and by love and true love for Christ and his people to such a degree that Paul would have ministered with him, as I said last week, in Antioch, in Jerusalem, in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Crete, And in Rome, for two and a half decades, Paul and Titus would have ministered together. It also speaks that he wouldn't be easily intimidated. If he's showing up before the tribunal of the apostles to defend this theology, you can imagine him having courage. We talked about his role in the church in Corinth last week and how courageous and tactful and wise he had to be but I want to think about courage. This Yesterday and today, we had board meetings here at the seminary, yesterday at the university. And um, there's about 15 board members who oversee the university and the seminary. They make kind of high-level decisions, and they lead the whole thing. Pastor John is the chancellor. Abner Chow is the president. And so these men gather around them. And so this morning, we had a couple who's a seminary student and his wife come to do their testimony. He's in his first year of seminary. Now, he is a former NFL player. Played for the Ravens and a couple other teams, I think. Uh, top-notch, right? He was uh, all-time leading receiver in the ACC. She's a two-time gold medal medalist. She has still the world record for the 400-meter run. Okay, so these are not people who should be easily intimidated, right? Right? Right, right. right. if they can accomplish NFL and she is, literally has two gold medals, and she's the favored for next year, and then six years from now, they're not, they shouldn't be easily intimidated. She walks in, they walk into the boardroom, and she said, this is such an intimidating environment. Only because you have a bunch of suits all around the table, and they're just staring at this young couple early, in their early 20s. But she would say, okay, so this is her, literally opening line from her mouth before she says her testimony, and you have Titus who's appearing in a similar fashion before the tribunal of the early church leaders. So Paul picked a man who can stand his ground, who has enough confidence and courage to lead the church, and he will use him in that regard. One of the commentators described Titus this way he was capable, energetic, tactful, resourceful, skillful in handling men and affairs, and effective in conciliating people. Naturally, more aggressive than Timothy. He could not only take orders, but also take the initiative in the face of challenging circumstances. He breathed the spirit of Paul as he was vigorous, resourceful, and a strong arm to Paul. And so that's the partnership that we have to imagine when we talk about Titus and Paul. The last time that Titus is mentioned in the New Testament is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. This is a couple months before Paul is executed. And I talked about this verse last time, that is to say that Demas had abandoned Paul. He defected from the faith because he became too worldly and chose worldliness over Christ and the mission of the gospel. In that same verse, 2 Timothy 4.10, it says that Titus went to Dalmatia. And I made a point last week that Titus was so committed to the mission of advancing the gospel. That he would rather take it to another location in the Roman Empire. Than to stay with Paul in the final days of his life. As much as he would have wanted to do that. If he knew and he would have known that Paul's death is imminent. You have this desire to be with your mentor. With your advisor. With your, uh, your discipler. And yet he chose to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well. Paul in verse 5 says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set things in order. So as difficult as the situation in Corinth was, that we talked about last week, if Paul, of all of the other people accessible to him, the hundred that I mentioned in the New Testament, he picks one, Titus. We have to understand what was happening on Crete. That Paul chose Titus, not Timothy, not Apollos, not Ananias and Sapphira, church planters all over the Roman Empire. He chose Titus. Verse 12 says, Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. In verse 15, he says, They are defiled, Their mind and their conscience are defiled. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. Commentators write about the Cretans as men who had low moral values, who were deplorable. They prided themselves in the fact that Zeus, the Greek god, was born and was buried on Crete. So, just think about the influence of the Greek mythology and the specifically Greek paganism. Everything starts on Crete. So, if you ever took any kind of world civ class or Roman history, Greco-Roman culture and history, everything religious, religion wise, begins on Crete. The first Olympiad, seven seven six BC, was started to honor the formation of the Greek Greek religion. On Crete. So if you begin to put all that together, you see this is the value that the Cretans assigned to their island. We are super important because Greek religion begins with us, our island. The island of Crete was about 4,000 square miles, which is, I'm sorry, 3,200 square miles. Uh, The biggest island in Hawaii is 4,000. So just kind of imagine that if you ever looked on a map, how big the island of Hawaii is, the big one. Uh, it's just a little bit bigger than Crete. It's a relatively big place. But Zeus became known as the father, king, lord, and savior. So when Paul picks up on those terms, even in the opening verses, you can now begin to see what he's doing. He says, entering Crete, the people on this island talk about Zeus being the father, the lord, the king, the savior. The truth is, it's not Zeus. It's God and Jesus Christ, the true Savior. Zeus was called the commander and the God of the entire cosmos. In Acts 16, he's called the most high God. And so this is the understanding of Zeus in the churches and the people that have been converted from the worship of Zeus to ultimately the worship of God and Jesus Christ. That's why Paul, in the first few verses, refers to God five times, unlike anywhere else in his writings. Because he says, this is what defines Crete, the god Zeus. I'm going to go after the true God. I'm going to pit them against one another. Like Elijah of old took the prophets of Baal and pit them against the prophets of Yahweh. He was alone in that representation. And he said, let's have a duel and see who the true God is. Paul is doing something similar here in his writing. He says, you've got Zeus and then you've got the real God. Let's pit them against one another. And he let's figure out who's the real father and the real king and the real savior and the real Lord over the universe. And so he presents God as the father in four, himself being God's steward in seven, as the great God in 2.13 and a few other passages describing this God. So when you think about Crete and you think about Titus and you think about Paul's influence, you have to have this context. Crete is actually mentioned in the Old Testament, Amos 9.7. It says that the Philistines came from Crete. So there's an Old Testament connection as well. But as you move forward in human history, in the 8th century BC, we learned that the Greek art was started on the island of Crete. So now you've got culture Greek culture starting up on Crete, not just Greek religion. You've got slingers and archers and lawgivers. All of that in the Greek history starts on Crete. There's a hundred cities that were recognized by Homer in his writings that existed on Crete. The aristocratic society was elevated and was revered even by Aristotle and Plato in their writings and how they established their cities, their polis, on Crete. In the third century BC, it became a home for pirates because it was a central location to get to Levant, to get to Egypt, to get to Cyprus. And so the piracy flourished in that from that island. It was until it was in the 71 BC or so when the Romans get engaged in that location. They defeat all the pirates. Romans enter Crete and they take over. And fast forward. To the date of Titus, 62-63, you've got 100 years of Roman influence on Crete. Just over 100 years, about 130 years or so. And what you find out when you start studying Roman history is all the debauchery and all the vices and all the lust. Everything that you would typically think about when you think about Romans, you have to now import that to Crete which is why Paul describes the Cretans the way he does. So when Titus and Paul at some time prior to the writing of this book enter Crete and they minister and they start churches probably after Acts 28, Paul is dealing with that kind of a cultural polluted environment that is fixated on the worship of Zeus. And of course, with that worship, as I talked about earlier, it comes with debauchery and sin. So this is where Paul sends Titus and says, go set things in order. Go fix things. Because the people at Crete, on that island, profess to know God, verse 16, but by their deeds, they deny him. So there's a disconnect between profession of being a believer to actually living the Christian life. And so now we get into the aim of this book. We've just understood who the author was, who the audience is, and that is Titus. And now we have the aim or the purpose of this book. And in verse 1, go back to the beginning, Paul says, as an apostle, as a servant of God, I am writing this. For the faith of those chosen of God, and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life. So, for the first thing that Paul says in his purpose is the purpose statement or his aim is, I'm doing this for the faith of the elect. For the faith of the elect. In other words, my apostleship and me being a bond servant of God is established. Because of the faith of the elect. And the best way to understand this phrase is to say, I'm here to bring the elect to faith. We know that God has chosen certain people from Ephesians 1, from Romans 8, from John 6, to salvation. This has happened in eternity past. And now the process of getting them to salvation is the gospel. That's why we proclaim the gospel. Romans 10 makes it very clear from verse 9 to verse 15. That there's no way a person will believe unless they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, my apostleship is for the faith of those chosen of God. They were chosen of God in the eternity past. And now I'm trying to bring them into faith as I preach the gospel. It's very similar to what Paul says in Philippians chapter two, verse 17. He says this, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice And share my joy with you all. Paul committed his whole life to advance the faith of other believers. And he viewed his life as an altar. I'm just here to spill my life out. Like as if a a sacrifice is put on an altar and ultimately the blood drips, the water is typically put on top of it as a way to demonstrate life flowing out. That's a sacrifice to the gods. Paul says, this is how I view my life. I'm just a sacrifice to advance the faith of believers. That's his goal as a slave of God and as an apostle. And how does he do that? Well, look at the end of verse one. So I'm an apostle for the faith of those who are chosen by God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. The knowledge of the truth, this phrase, keeps reappearing in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. I said that those three books come together as a package. They're called the pastoral epistles. And so repeatedly, Paul keeps talking about the knowledge of the truth. For example, take a look at 2 Timothy 3.7. Just pull back one page, most likely in your Bible. And so he's talking about individuals who are ungodly. Verse two calls them lovers of self, money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, on and on and on. In verse seven, he says this, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So whatever knowledge of the truth is, it's not simply intellectual because they're always learning. So it's not just about intellect. There's something deeper to that. If you look at first Timothy chapter four, and if you look at verse three, He says, there are people in churches who forbid marriage, advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. So now this rejection of marriage and certain foods comes because people don't know the real truth. And if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 in verse 3, he says this. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and doesn't agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, godliness, doctrine, think back to Titus 1, he's conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So now you have men who are pursuing godliness, pursuing truth, but their minds are depraved and they are deprived of truth. So I'm just trying to make a case that as Paul uses this phrase, knowledge of the truth, pursuit of the truth, it's not simply intellectual. There's something deeper that Paul has in mind. And the way you understand or know about yourself, whether you do have that knowledge of the truth, is, back to Titus 1.1, it is according to godliness. That truth is according to godliness. That is to say, it demonstrates itself in a life of godliness. John 17.3 is really what we're talking about. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So you have eternal life being defined as knowing God and Jesus Christ. You go back to Titus 1, and he talks about the knowledge of the truth. And in verse 2, in the hope of eternal life. So Paul links the same truths that John does as he defines the true knowledge of God. That is to say, we're talking about a true relationship with Jesus Christ. So, it's not simply understanding the words that you can read on the pages of scripture. It's not simply understanding the gospel intellectually. John Calvin defines true faith as intellectual assent that ultimately you understand with your heart. There's an emotional or affective response, affective. And then ultimately it, res- it results in an emotional commitment or a decision, a volition. So it's intellect, it's affection, and it's volition. That is true belief, according to John Calvin, which is pretty standard when we talk about true faith versus false faith. So it's not simple understanding, it's understanding, it's having a response, hatred towards a sin, love for Christ, and then deciding to follow Jesus. So Paul is talking about, my life is committed to this mission to advance the faith of God's elect, to bring them to faith and then to advance them in that faith and the knowledge of the truth that is according to godliness, it demonstrates itself in godliness in the hope of eternal life. Uniquely, Paul focuses on godliness. There are 37 mentions of this word in the New Testament, godliness. Godly or godliness, okay? Adjective or noun or adverb. 23 of the 37 are in 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. There's a unique focus in these three final books of Paul on godliness, godly living. It's as if Paul reflecting on his, by this point, nearly 35 years of ministry. And it says, if there's something that I'd like to leave behind as a repeated theme for Christians to never forget, it's godliness. And so he he mentions it 23 times in those three books. Whereas the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament, the other 24 books, only 14 times. So if you want to remember anything about Titus, remember that the Christian life is characterized by godliness. One commentator defined godliness as, Expressing strongly Christian new existence that combines belief in God and a consequent manner of life. It's a total commitment of one's life to God with the emphasis on the practical working, outworking of that faith. So it's not just simply professing to know God, but it's actually confirming that profession. With your life. And that's what we can say. Titus is about doctrine and deeds. What you know and how you live. It's about godliness in the world of godlessness. Or the ungodly life. Lives that we see all around us. Why would Paul have to focus on such a theme? Well, because of what we already mentioned about the Cretans. Because they were godless people. We've read the ending of chapter 1. If you look at chapter 2, in verses 9 and 10, he talks about slaves needing to be subject to their own masters in everything. That is to say, they weren't. To be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not stealing. So in other words, you've got people that are employed, like I talked about, slavery in the ancient world was mostly an employment system. But they're stealing. They're disrespectful. They're not well-pleasing. And the reason Paul says that you should do the opposite of what you want to do is verse 10, so that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our savior in every respect, draw people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse two of chapter three, he says, do not malign one another, be peaceful, be gentle, show every consideration for all men. In other words, that wasn't happening in the churches on the island of Crete. In verse 10 of chapter three, he says, reject the factious men after the first or second warning. Knowing that this man is perverted, he's sinning, being self-condemned. That's a version of church discipline. We practice that here. It's as if he's skipping the last two steps. You know, the church discipline has four steps, right? If you see somebody sinning, you go to him. If he doesn't listen, you bring another person with you. If he doesn't listen to two people, you tell the whole church. And If he doesn't listen to the whole church as it goes after him, then you put him out. Here, Paul says, look, if you find a factious man, warn him once, warn him twice, get him out. In other words, there there were people on Crete that were characterized by this behavior. So that's the environment that Titus enters as he's supposed to set things in order. What really was happening is the churches on Crete were beginning to reflect the culture around them because the ancient philosophers describe Cretans as liars, lazy, and evil, verse 12. To Cretize, Crete, Cretize as a verb, in the ancient world means to be a liar. That's it. If you're a Cretan, you are a liar. Because the first king of Crete, Puchius, was considered to be a liar. And so kind of from that initial story, Everybody was characterized as liars. So as you think about our environment, I hope you can agree that this book is kind of relevant. Because godlessness is all around. Liars are all around. Whether they're lying to us about the economy or about climate change or about our gender, right? Women can be men and men can be a woman. All this crazy stuff that's happening around us, I think it's very relevant to our current day. In some sense, I think Second Timothy chapter 3, the first five verses are being lived out right in front of us. When Paul says in the... Last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. And I read verse four, verse 5 before. They hold to a form of godliness, but they denied its power. And I think if you look at all of those statements and all of those descriptions of individuals, we can see that happening in front of us. For Paul, this was a prophetic statement. This is what the future looks like. I think for us, this is what the present looks like. And therefore, the book that calls us to godliness amidst godlessness is a very relevant book for us to consider. And I would say the key verses of this book are two Verses 11 through 14. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And this is what it says. For the grace of God has appeared. In other words, why did the grace of God come? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men for the faith of the elect, so that the elect would believe. That's the first statement. Bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us, after you were saved, to deny ungodliness. And worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, if you missed it, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. There's a lot going on in this little section. But the main point is that salvation immediately results in godliness and a pursuit of good deeds for which we're to be zealous. That's why Jesus came, not simply to die, but to die and to work out godliness in us, which we also have to understand that godliness isn't simply a mechanism or some kind of a, a commitment to a ritual. I'm going to keep these certain rules. I'm going to keep these regulations. I'm going to maintain my focus on these 10 principles for my life. And then I will be godly. It's not a legalistic approach to the Christian life. Because the first thing that Paul says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. In other words, the gospel becomes the foundation and the basis for godliness. And so if you haven't repented from your sins, if you haven't recognized Jesus as the only Savior, as the only path to God, as the only way and truth and life, then you will never live a godly life that is pleasing to God, no matter how hard you try, no matter how many regulations you put upon yourself, no matter how disciplined you want to be. Because ultimately, it's the gospel that transforms your life from an ungodly life, verse 12, to a pursuit of godliness that is done by the gospel. And then Paul says, and then we become zealous for good deeds. And if you haven't repented from your sins, then this is the beginning point towards a life of godliness. You repent and you recognize Jesus as Savior. And that's what I want to leave with you at the very beginning, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms our lives and moves us on the path toward godliness. A more specific explanation for that is in verse, in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. When the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds. In other words, it doesn't matter how godly you are before Christ, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would have been made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Hope of eternal life take us back, takes us back to 1-2. So whether it's at the beginning of the letter or toward the end of the letter, Paul says this is how we get to eternal life. It is salvation, the justification that happens by His grace, not because of works. And in this book, godliness expresses itself in two ways. Living sensibly and performing good deeds. Paul focuses on those two elements. And so he says, we are to live sensibly. If you look at verse eight of chapter one, so verse five says, we're talking about elders now, leaders in the church. And there's a list of qualifications. And in verse eight, a qualification is that they are to be sensible. So before Paul goes after any other individual in the church, younger women, younger men in chapter 2, older women, older men in chapter 2, slaves in chapter 2, husbands, wives, before he goes after anyone else, he said this, he says the starting point is the leaders of the church are to be sensible. They're the ones who are going to set the example for every other Christian. And the definition of sensibility in this book is self-control through sober thinking. Self-control through sober thinking. It means that you and your behavior are appropriate to every situation. It's about using good judgment in every situation. It's about moderation. It's about restraints. Your doctrine regulates your life. One of the best uses or maybe illustrations of this term that appears back in Mark chapter 5 is in the context of a demoniac. When Jesus heal- heals a demon possessed man in Mark chapter 5, the first part of the chapter, he's in the country of the Garrisones. And so he casts out the demon. In verse 4, it says he was bound by shackles. He would break them. Nobody was strong enough to subdue him. He lived in the tombs in the mountains. He would cut himself with stones. He was a crazy man. And in verse 15, after the demon has been cast out, and remember the demons, his name was Legion, verse 9. There are many. Jesus cast them out into the pigs. In verse 15, Jesus came they came to Jesus, this is, this is uh, the people now of the city, and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, in his right mind. There's your word, sensible. The, the man who was mad before because of the demon named Legion, he is now in his right mind. That's the transformation that happens spiritually speaking. Our minds are Perverted they're corrupt. Read Ephesians 4:17 through 24 to understand the mind before Christ changes it. And now this image of a man who can think clearly, who has sober judgment about life. That happens to us spiritually. So that's the first expression of godliness. We have sensibility. We can think clearly, soberly, with moderation, and that is an express, it expresses itself in self-control. And the second expression is good works. Eight times, Paul will talk about deeds or good works. At the very end of chapter 1, verse 16, he says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. In two fourteen, he says, we're to be zealous for good deeds. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, we're to be ready for good deeds. In verse 8 of chapter 3, he says we're to be careful to engage in good deeds. In verse 14 of chapter 3, he says our people must learn to engage in good deeds. And that language there actually means to become a leader of good deeds. In other words, you're not just kind of in the very back of a race trying to just hold on with the pack. You're kind of doing good deeds here and there. You're just kind of keeping up barely with the Christian race. No, no. He says you're the very front of the race, in regards to measuring good deeds. You are a leader of good deeds. So when people look at your life and they evaluate your life, they can see this person is characterized by good deeds. And they become an example and a model, a leader of good deeds because Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good deeds. After we've been saved, we now pursue a life of good deeds, And even if you're the lowest member in society, like a slave would have been an employee, chapter two, verses nine and 10, even if you have no social standing, you couldn't vote, you couldn't own property necessarily. And depending on what ethnicity you were and what gender you were, it could even get worse for you back in the Roman days. But even if you were the lowest of the low on the social ladder, Paul says in verse 9 and 10, if you live a life of godliness as a slave, you will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. You can attract people to the gospel of Jesus Christ with your life irrespective of how wealthy you are or what title you have or what company you work for or what education level you have. It doesn't matter. People will still pay attention to you because there's something unique about you as a godly individual, as a person who's characterized by good deeds. And Paul uses a language of cosmetics. You are attracting people because of this beautification process that you're contributing to because of your life this same word is used in revelation chapter 21 to describe the new jerusalem adorned as a bride and when we think about the new jerusalem that's where we want to be it's beautiful it's our eternity it's free from all sin and all tears and all weeping and all pain Read the last two chapters of Revelation. That's the new Jerusalem. And the same term describes it. It is adorned like a bride. And Paul says, your life needs to be adorned with good deeds. And thereby you will attract people to the gospel. In 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Peter 3, the same word is used to describe beautiful women. And so the idea is a beautification to the gospel message with your life. Why? Because in verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, the way you live your life, if you're sensible, verse 5, if you are a young woman and you're sensible, the word of God will not be dishonored. You go to verse 8, and if you're a young man who's also sensible, according to verse 6, then in verse 8, the opponent opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. So in other words, now our life is actually connected to our mission. The hostility people may increase against the Christians sometimes is connected to the way we live. I remember for Johnson telling me once, this is years ago, I think I was a college student. And I I asked him once, what is the greatest obstacle to somebody becoming a Christian? And he said, "The life of the Christian, because there's there are so many hypocrites, the profession and the life do not match up." Just think about what's happening with Andy Stanley. How many of you know who Andy Stanley is? Wow, like this whole side of the room does, and this side does, and this is awesome, fascinating. So Andy Stanley is a very famous pastor. In Atlanta, he's the son of Charles Stanley. How many of you know about Charles Stanley? Okay, more of you. He recently passed away. I think he was in his 90s, maybe 90. Uh, Super famous preacher, conservative, uh, very famous. Well, Andy is his son. And Andy has progressively over the last decade or so has become more and more and more liberal. So last weekend-ish, I think 29th of September, he held a conference called Unconditional. Anybody read about this? few of you okay good so some of you know what i'm talking about the unconditional conference was put on by andy stanley in order to as he says not to draw lines but to draw circles around the lgbtq christians okay i want to read to you a couple of things and then make a comment on what the non christians are saying online about this conference the conditional Conference, this is their description of it, is a premier event for Christian parents with LGBTQ plus children, ministry leaders, and counselors. In a world that makes us choose sides, you will experience a conference from the quieter middle space. You'll enjoy community with, with hundreds of other Christians on similar journeys and be informed, nourished, refreshed, and discover newfound purpose you once may have thought impossible So at this conference, he had multiple speakers, non-conservative Christians. But there was a homosexual couple married, Justin Lee and Brian Nitzel, who are in a same-sex marriage. And so he says this is why they were invited. I'm sure you've read all about it. He says, here's the thing about Brian and Justin. Their stories and their journeys of growing up in church and maintaining their faith in Christ And their commitment to follow Christ all through their high school and college and singles and all up to that time that they were married. Their story is so powerful for parents of gay, especially kids, that it's a story gay parents and gay kids need to hear. And so he focuses it on their commitment to follow Christ that allegedly never fails. And he says that this is what they have chosen, and therefore we should not judge them. He says this, gay Christians choose a same-sex marriage, not because they've convinced it's biblical. They read the same Bible we do. They chose to marry for the same reason many of us do, love, companionship, and family. It is their decision, and our decision is to decide how we respond to their decision. So in other words, he puts the onus on the people responding to the truth of the fact that there's a gay couple who are speakers at this conference and he wants us to accept them. Now, there's a lot of criticism. Al Mohler criticized him. There's a number of articles you can read all about it. One I wanted to read to you from an unbeliever. Quote, that's why Andy Stanley's sermon isn't a step forward. It's the same bigoted, some cuss words, that we're used to hearing from evangelical preachers. He's not a Christian. He just, this is the unbeliever writing, he just delivers it with a smile, as if he's doing gay people a favor by complimenting their devotion. He's just couching his bigotry in the language of religion to make it all sound better. Just because he's not preaching fire and brimstone doesn't mean he doesn't harbor the same views as every other evangelical who routinely condemns homosexuality. Another person said, LGBTQ Christian, what a warped concept. So from the world's perspective, a Christian pastor wanting to embrace and affirm the homosexual lifestyle comes across as completely hypocritical. And so they get criticized. This is happening now. This is a week old. I'm not pulling something from the 90s for you guys. This is happening here and now. And now you begin to see, okay, a Christian who doesn't live like a Christian. According to the biblical ethic of sexuality and morality is mocked. And because how else are they going to respond? Because you're either drawing people to Christ with your life of faithfulness and obedience to scripture, or you're giving people a platform to mock Christ and his gospel. It's not just about what Andy Stanley is doing. It's about what we are doing. So as you think about your life every single day, 24 hours a day, whether it's Sunday or Wednesday, is your life an adornment to the gospel or is it an obstruction to the gospel that solicits mockery and accusations of hypocrisy? I think that's the application from this book that I hope all of us are willing to take away, that Paul is writing to the Cretans of the first century AD, but by application, it's relevant to us because godliness should be the pursuit of every Christian who hopes to gain eternal life. Chapter one, verse two. So the reason Paul says, I'm investing into the faith of the elect, I'm investing into the knowledge of the truth that is resulting in godliness Is because we have the hope of eternal life. In other words, the desire and the pursuit and the hope of eternal life ultimately motivates us toward godliness. That's what Paul is trying to say here. He he says something similar in Colossians 1. We have heard of your faith in Christ, Jesus, and the love with which you you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. The word of truth that is constantly bearing fruit and increasing from the day you heard it. So in other words, you have this hope that is laid up for you in heaven that translates into you constantly bearing fruit. It's the same thing that Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us in this way we will gain entrance into the eternal kingdom of our lord the same principle principles that Peter connects Paul connects that we are motivated by this Transition from this life to the next. And that should impact our lives today. And so Paul says, in eternity past, God elected you, chose you for salvation. That triggers a hope for eternal life from a God, verse 2, who doesn't lie. Remember, Zeus was a liar. The first king of Crete was a liar. The Cretans are liars, verse 12. And so he says, but our God doesn't lie. And when he makes a promise that he will give you salvation that results in eternal life that he promised long ages ago, that is a reference to the eternal covenant that was made between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We're not talking about something written in the Old Testament here. No, it's something that the Godhead made a decision according to Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 before time began to save people. And so God made this covenant within the Godhead to save a number of elect. Individuals through human history, and it will come to pass. Verse 3 says, at the proper time, it came to pass. Even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. It's what Revelation thirteen eight says, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. But that lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. What in the world does that mean? Well, there was nothing created and the lamb was slain? In the plan of God, he was because the plan of God before eternity passed included this commitment toward saving a group of people, the elect. And then Galatians 4.4 4 says, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son born of a woman. So you've got eternity past being attached at the proper time. Verse 3 of Titus 1. So now we're blending eternity with human history. And God says, we are operate. or Paul says, we're operating in human history, and my job as an apostle and as a slave of God is to invest my life into the salvation of the elect and then to help them in their pursuit of godliness. And Paul says, I can't do this alone. And so in verse four, he says, Titus. And in verse five, he says, set things in order, fix things that are broken. And that is his assignment. So we know the author, the audience, the aim, and now we know the assignment, and we're going to start talking about it next time. The assignment begins in verse 5, set in order that is left behind by me. When I was at Crete before, I couldn't finish the job. I'm sending you Titus to finish the job because there's a leadership vacuum. So appoint elders in every single church. And there are certain qualifications that these men have to fulfill before they become elders and make sure that their life is characterized by sensibility and good deeds. So as we embark on this journey into Titus, however many months it's going to take us, I think I'm going to go slow. The takeaway, if at all, if you want to take anything away, is that what you know and what you listen to and what you read, your doctrine, impacts your deeds. Because if you're an Andy Stanley's church and what he teaches and what he professes to believe from Scripture and then teach to his people, thousands and thousands of people, their deeds would just de- understood what they are from the conference they just hosted. That's why you have to be careful. What you listen to, and what you study and what you read and who this, what the sermons are that you listen to. That's why we space so much attention on this campus to proper teaching, proper interpretation of scripture. That's what we tell people go to seminars, study the methodology, the hermeneutics. How do you study scripture? Because it ultimately impacts your life. And your life, after all that teaching, all that doctrine will either attract people to Christ or become an obstruction for people to come to Christ. And I hope that your desire for yourself is that you want to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray to that end. Lord God, we are grateful that we can come to you this evening understanding what you expect of us understanding that apart from the work of Jesus Christ in our lives, apart from repenting from our sins, turning away from them, confessing Jesus Christ as the only Savior and as the only Lord of our lives, we can never, ever have the hope of eternal life. But we do confess that He is our Savior and our King. And we are in a mission sent by Him into this world, characterized by godlessness, in order to bring about the faith of the elect to help one another in advancement toward godliness as we long for the new jerusalem i pray for all of us as a bible study that as we interact with people all around us every single day and as they hear us talk and as they watch us make decisions as they see us spend our money and our time, that we would attract people to the gospel. And that when we end our Christian race, as Paul said of himself, I've run the race, I've finished the course, there's now laid up for me the crown of life. That we would confidently and eagerly await that crown. Empower us to that end. Give us a desire and a discipline to pursue godliness. We pray this to the honor of your name. Amen.